This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and also an author, and my recent book is Find Your Happy at Work. In today's show, we'll explore how shifts in global aging, with masses of people living to a very old age, will change a lot about society. Our guest is Bradley Sherman. He's an expert on demographic change and how it can disrupt social, cultural, political, and economic norms. We'll discuss Brad's insightful book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Brad will talk about how the growing pool of healthy older people is impacting how employers recruit workers and plan for the future. He'll describe how population shifts may impact our communities and the markets that serve them. And he'll comment on the huge longevity gap between rich people and poor people. Brad, I am so pleased that you're here with us today. I I know that you and I will find plenty to talk about. I think we will. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to talk a lot about aging and what it means for society and all kinds of things about it. Uh, and of course, we're going to talk about your really intriguing book, The Super Age, Deco- Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Uh, but here in Jazz About Work, we always like to know about our guests' own careers and how they got there. And I'm particularly interested in how, as a pretty young guy, you started to become very interested in um aging. So would you tell us a bit about your career path? And also, you have an unusual consultancy now. I'd like to hear a little bit about what you're doing at work, and and then we'll get on to the book. Sure. Um, Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, The career trajectory that I went on is, I think, a bit unusual for for a young man. Um, When I was in college, I thought I was going to be the next congressman from uh, Western Pennsylvania. Um, I went to American University in Washington, D.C., and while I was there, my grandparents um, got old. Um, they got to a point where they needed to enter long-term care. And because of that, I, I picked up interest in the space of aging and um, health care for the elderly. But it really wasn't um, until I was making a regular drive from Pittsburgh to Washington that I noticed how demographic change was impacting the landscape. And across rural America, you'll find that populations are older, they're whiter, they're more male, um, and they're working longer. Um, They're working in jobs that would have once only been reserved for the young. And it was at that point that I thought this could be the future. And I dug into it and started my career at leading age, which represents nonprofit nursing homes across the country. I then graduated to AARP, where I worked in their global relations department, uh, focusing on finding products and services, practices, and best policies from around the world. And then I left AARP in about 2018, um, 
call it a midlife crisis, call it a midlife awakening, um, call it just not wanting to be in the same place for the next 25 years. But I walked away. I walked away with an idea of starting a consultancy, a, a data company really, that was focused on helping people understand what the changing life course meant for their businesses and how they could apply data that wasn't age-based, but rather stage-based to their models so they could capture more clientele. That business failed. Um, It failed within a year. Um, We were way too ahead of the market um, for them, anyone really, to take it seriously. Uh, There was still too little understanding of of longevity. So I walked away from that um, with my other partners, dissolved the enterprise, And a few short months later, I had put together a book proposal uh, for the Super Age. It sold to HarperCollins. And in the midst of a pandemic, uh, began building a business and writing a book, which came out earlier this year. So the book is called The Super Age. And your, your business is also, that doesn't describe what you do. What yeah. are you doing now? So what do I do? New- yeah, it's a yeah. great question. I mean, what the core bit of work that we have at the Super Age is a consultancy. And our goal is to help organizations understand a future that is older and more demographically diverse than ever before in history. The super age is actually a term um, that I borrowed from the United Nations. It's a population term. That means that one out of five people are over the age of 65. But just because we're living in an older society doesn't mean that people are actually presenting as old, or at least how we think old looks. In fact, through every advance our society has made, we've added life stages to it. Um my grandparents, my great-grandparents rather, lived a three-stage life. They were children, adults, and, and old people. My grandparents lived a four-stage life. They were children, adults, retired, and then old. Uh, my parents lived a five-stage life. I led a six-stage life. I was a child. I was a teenager. I'm an adult. I can expect to enter a period called the super age, um, these, this new period of life between adulthood and retirement, then I might become retired and then I might get old. But we really help businesses understand what these these changes mean for their bottom line. We help them with their retention and recruitment practices um, for employees. We, we focus in on product and service design. And we help them um, as much as they can be helped with their marketing and communications, which are kind of the last, the last frontier. In addition to the consulting services, we offer design consultation for individuals and organizations that want to future-proof their space, um, make their space more inclusively designed so that a greater proportion of the population can use it. Well, that's fascinating. And uh, the timing for things like design and um, training and just everything going on in the workplace is so interesting because of COVID and the huge move to remote work. So aside from these demographic things that have been you know, set in place since the 40s, the kinds of work you're doing is going to meet the needs of lots of other employers and communities that are, that are grappling with what a remote world looks like, right? Sure, sure. Well, you know, a lot of, um, 
a lot of businesses make the mistake of only thinking about the old um, or the young. They don't think about the intersectionality of the two. And the reality is the boomers were a massive generation in terms of size. Um, they're leaving the workforce now because they were forced out um, or because they've chosen to retire. What people tend to miss is that Gen Z is sizably smaller um, than the boomer generation. So there just aren't enough people to fill those slots. So in order for businesses to really maintain their operational effectiveness, as I lay out in the super age, um, they have to consider inclusion as central to their work. And that inclusion means looking at things like flexible options, making sure that everyone's technically literate, um, and really leaning into the different life challenges that might come for those of us who live a longer life. That makes so much sense. If there are not a huge number of healthy young people entering the workforce year after year after year, then there are opportunities for people who've not been included to reskill, to find ways where um, they can have access to, uh, there's lots of opportunities for employers to bring in people they wouldn't have considered before, like a 55-year-old who wants to learn tech. Is, is that right? Is that exactly. kind of the upside? That's, well, the upside is, is that we've been pushing out talent. Uh, this is the downside, rather. The downside is that we've been pushing out talent faster than it should go. Um, we've been we've been excluding people from the workforce because we had for decades now, following the boom, um, this readily available, large, affordable workforce, and that dynamic has changed now. So employers need to look outside of that that normal hiring practice of going for the young only to going for a group that is inherently more diverse. And here's the upside for business. Um, again, I lay this out in the super age. The upside for business is that teams that are more diverse, um, they do better. Um, they tend to be more innovative. They tend to have um, contribute to greater profit margins. Um, they identify blind spots for managers and executives that may live in kind of a, a mono monocultural or mono monofictional world. In reality, when we bring all of these different pieces together, whether it be age or ability or even gender or race, those things all mix together to create really, really phenomenal products and services that actually serve a larger portion of the population, not a smaller one. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Let's put it in context and in a global context, because, of course, there are lots of ways to look at uh, the, the availability of workers, if we look kind of broadly. Early in, in the book, there are some really eye-catching population charts. It, 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 I think you, they focused on maybe Germany, Japan, and Italy. Would you tell, uh, describe for our listeners what those charts look like when you look at the population in those countries? Yeah. So for, for all of human history, um, our progress was marked as very slow, very deliberate. Our population growth was very small as well. We have what were what are referred to as population pyramids. So if you think about the pyramids at Giza, wide on the bottom, narrow at the top. The wide part at the bottom represents the number of young people who are born. 
and the narrow tippy top at the at the very top of the pyramid illustrates um, the number of older people alive. Well, what's happened because we've solved for a lot of the challenges that prevented young people from making it to adulthood uh, prior to the early 1900s, um, 50% of children actually made it to adulthood. The other 50% died is that we've created an environment where more older people, more people live to be middle-aged and in later life. So at the same time, our population birth rates have been dropping. The pyramid now looks a lot more like a square. And if you look in at the older countries, the countries that are ahead of the demographic shift, places like Japan, Italy, Germany that you mentioned, um, they're starting to invert. So a country like Japan, for example, because uh, deaths outpace births in that nation, they lost 644,000 people last year alone. So that's the equivalent of losing the entire city of Las Vegas or the entire state of Vermont. It's a lot of people. Yeah. So how does uh, the U.S. compare with those three old countries? Well, we're not immune. Um, that's the first and foremost, is that countries around the world are going through this. There are only a handful of exceptions, um, as I lay out in the book. Um, most of those exist in sub-Saharan Africa. The United States is going through a demographic transition that is slower than the rest of the world, um, but we are still aging. So by the end of this decade, we can anticipate that we will be in the super age, the United States. But it's really important that we don't look at the United States as a singular unit. We should look across the nation, um, state to state, locality to locality, because that tells a much richer picture, gives a much richer picture of where we're headed. So half of U.S. states, deaths are outpacing births. Three quarters of U.S. counties are the same way. So we are talking about a future that is already in existence for good chunks of this country where they're living with a much older population. Believe it or not, there are actually, actually counties in the United States where the median age is well over 50. The national average, by the way, is about 38. I know there are lots of rural counties that are feeling overwhelmed by um, their older populations and, and not enough young people to provide services. Yeah, and this is where technology steps in. Um, and this is where, you know, efforts to improve broadband access, you know, I think the broadband approach that the government's trying right now is the equivalent of a modern Tennessee Valley authority, you know, by delivering technology um, into rural counties, we can anticipate that care can be improved as well. Um, otherwise, rural counties have been hit by the biggest megatrends harder and faster than the rest of the country, certainly faster than the coastal cities. So things like globalization, automation, digitization, urbanization, the outward migration of people have all really slammed rural America. So we have to find very novel, unique solutions um, if we want to continue to commit to the health, well-being, and security of these people. Do you see that starting to happen? Do you see big changes <laughs> no. in policy? <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly think that I certainly think that that the the current administration has made um, made good investments um, through legislation. 
um, that will not only improve broadband access, um, but also improve the lives of people living in these communities. Um, but I don't think that we fully realized just how bad it got during COVID because there was greater vaccine hesitancy in rural communities. And this put additional strain on already um, uh, troubled healthcare systems. Um, across the, the heartland, doctors and nurses on average are much older than they are in cities um, on the coast. So that means that these folks may be, may be interested in leaving um, a healthcare setting at, at some point because of retirement that they choose. So the technologies are necessary um, in order to maintain um, the health and well-being of these people. It will take a few years for them to roll out. Yeah, it feels like it is going uh, pretty unevenly. Speaking of uneven, uh, the this amazing opportunity for many people to have healthy lives well um, into their 80s and 90s even, um, it, it's not shared equally around no, the country, around the world, is it? No, certainly not. Um, we have what's called the longevity gap in this country, and it exists worldwide as well. And the longevity gap is is largely tied to, to gender, wealth, race, you know, all the issues that, that contribute to income inequality as well. Um, <clears throat> in this country, there's about a 20, 20 plus year gap between those that experience the longest longevity and those that, that experience the shortest. But make no mistake, again, just like uh, population aging, it's it's not necessarily even from place to place. So I live in Washington, D.C. There's about a 22-year gap here in the city between the longest-lived person and the shortest-lived person on average. But if we look nationwide, the extremes are upwards of 40-plus years um, between um, uh, ultra-white, ultra-rich populations and ultra-poor um, indigenous ones. So there are there's a lot of fixing that needs to be done uh, in order to achieve equity. And, and this is stuff that needs to be done over the course of a lifetime, not just at the end. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School.
there's still a lot of um, ageism in the United States and across the world, I, I guess, um, with even people who have the ability and the interest of staying in the workplace or uh, maybe shifting to careers and things like that, uh, still, I think, are experiencing some ageism. Is one of the things you see happening kind of um, a new appreciation for, uh, I don't know what to call it, the healthy elderly? Yeah, because- you know, it's, it, we're still working on terminology for this, so, yeah. so uh, you're forgiven for, for, for not having the right words. I hate I mean, all the terms. Myself. I know, we all, we all hate them. They're just, they're just so, they all feel so demeaning and so performative. Yeah. The reality is we historically have had a very um, uh, consistently inconsistent relationship with, with the old. You know, on one hand, we celebrate the old um, as those uh, holders of history, those individuals that, that we choose to govern us. Um, that has remained relatively consistent. But for those of us that don't occupy those celebratory spaces, um, the academics, the artists, the musicians, well, life can be a little bit different for us. Um, that being said, because things are inconsistent, because ageism is something that's always been around, in fact, from the beginning of our species, um, we have to pay closer attention to how it affects us as individuals, others, and the organizations that we serve. Because it is, like all things, a bias. It is, in many ways, constructed. And if it is something that is constructed, it can be deconstructed if we put the right energies towards it. I I would be foolish if I didn't say that most of ageism doesn't come down to your age as much as how you present as an individual. I, I think that's right. And from an individual perspective, yeah. from an individual um, person who wants to be active in the work world or a nonprofit or whatever it is, there's some choice you can make. Uh, one of the choices that we've talked about here on uh, the show and I really believe in is that you can choose to keep up with technology. And if you are fluent, if you're digitally literate, a bunch of those assumptions about your inability because you're getting older do seem to go away. Would, would you agree with that? I do. I, I do. I, I do think, though, that the time and time again, and this is the big hurdle for, for all of us because it is so subjective, is that um, lookism really ties in very closely with ageism. So if you're falling outside of the um, the archetype of, of what a worker looks like, um, well, then, you know, you're going to be targeted. And this is whether you're young or old. Um, if you present yourself in a certain way, if you dress a certain way, if you, you know, uh, act a certain way, it's it's going to kind of focus some attention on you that that may not be be wanted. I do think it's very important for individuals to keep up on their skills. I think it's important for all people who are in the workplace to build resilience throughout the career um, because we have to assume that ageism might pop up at some point in time. Again, this is a bias that's been around for, you know, 
all of civilization. <laughs> it's not going to magically go away overnight. So by engaging in um, a number of different uh, approaches to building resilience, whether that be through lifelong education, um, how you present yourself in the office, how you speak with your colleagues and engage your colleagues, well, that is those are the ways that you can really build up um, a shield um, to not only make yourself protected, but also really, really get ahead, um, even towards the end of your career. One thing that you mentioned somewhere in the book that I that I enjoyed, because I, I feel like I'm kind of in this camp, and, and that is that some people as they're aging are doing two things. One is they're they're staying up to date and knowing what's happening in culture and they're taking care of themselves. So they have the energy and all of those kind of things. But at the same time, they're kind of owning it. They are saying, this is how old I am and this is how cool I am. And you can do both things at the same time. I think yeah. you talked about, were they Instagrammies who really yeah, are? Yeah, the Instagrannies. I mean, there are, there are a surprising number of people. And I think we this is one of those rare places that we can thank social media for making things better. Um, it's allowed uh, older women in particular, but, but older men too, to some degree, the ability to present their authentic selves, their, their lives as they see them, as they live them. And what's interesting is that on these channels, these these social media channels, they're hitting younger people first. So in many ways, they're doing the yeoman's task of, of tearing down a lot of ageist tropes. A lot of the followers that they get, especially the, the older women or younger women, um, and that's because younger women are now seeing a pathway towards later life that looks interesting. It isn't just becoming a grandma. It isn't just you know living out uh, in retirement. It's showing a bold new vision for what the future could be, um, because these women are living these lives today, um, and because of that, big companies have taken notice. You know, a number of these these Instagrannies, as they're called. I don't really love that term, but it is it is where uh -huh. things are kind of settled for how people call them. You know they're signing big deals with with uh, liquor companies, with with product companies, with service companies. They're repping for major major brands. Some of them um, are getting uh, design deals um, for clothing lines. It's it's a it's a different world, and this different world is only showing up because of this extended longevity that we're experiencing. Um, and I think uh, because of um, social media, that the fact that people can build their own channels, become their own influencers, they don't need to go through the traditional um, gates, gatekeeping of, of what media used to be. And because of what the success that we've seen in social media, it's bleeding into other areas too. You know, I don't think Grace and Frankie, the, the Netflix show, would have actually made it to production had it not been for social media. Um, because up until a show like Grace and Frankie and maybe even the Golden Girls before it, the general archetype for older people yeah. was either um, loving grandparent or kind of confused mess of an individual. I, I think you're exactly right. And, and that shows like that, I just, it's way beyond the Golden Girls. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's people who are still exploring romance and things like that in yeah. a very 
uh, clear way. Well, I mean, uh, human beings are sexual creatures. You know, the idea yes. that that we somehow turn off our sexuality and our desires at some mythical age is just it. it it's so contrary to the human experience. Um, I like the fact that we get to see this. I also like the fact that we get to see um, men and women who are choosing to stay stylish um, well into, you know, what have been cons- what would have been considered just a few years ago, the cardigan years, yes. you know, and this is a really important point because it gets back to the ageism piece, the style, the substance, the savvy, all of this comes together to create a new vision for what later life looks like. It also illustrates to younger people, I think, that there is a path to maintaining who you are. It evolves over time because we naturally change, but by making these adjustments, whether it be to well-being or to your looks, to your intellect and your skill set, even future-proofing your own homes and your own space by making minor modifications that allow you to live independently for longer periods of time in a very stylish way, this is what the new future looks like. And it looks this way for a growing cohort of individuals. Obviously, it's higher net worth individuals that have led this trend and will continue to be at the forefront, but it will democratize. It will reach down to um, middle and lower income populations quite quickly. One of the things you mentioned in the book kind of related to this is that having things be reinvented and be stylish and be cool creates a big new market. And so there's lots of reason to um, for producers of things to look for ways to make them more interesting. I, an example is like readers. Remember Readers used to be what grannies wore in cartoons Mm -hmm. and the end of their nose. But now there's so many cool glasses of all kinds of shapes and that people don't say you must be old because you've got reading glasses. I think we're sort of beyond that. Is that an example of of how the market can help too? We're just blowing past it right now. And, you know, in the book, I talk about Caddis Eyewear as well as Warby Parker, even crew that are not only considering readers as central to the, to their selling lines, um, but also bifocals, <laughs> some of these companies yeah. who would have ever thought that a, the designer eyewear company would be screaming from the rafters, you know, screaming from the rafters, check out my readers, look at my bifocals, but that shows the shifting marketplace. What's important to note about this and, and the book, I think highlights it. We certainly talk about it. Um, deeply in our business is a, if you have older workers as part of your team, if you've engaged a generationally diverse workforce, they're most like they're more likely to come up with innovative solutions like this. So by bringing in age diversity, you're actually solving for your problems up front because age diversity breeds greater innovation. I'm sure it brings that that point alone brings us almost full circle, but the. Yeah. The other point is that is that because technology has changed, a lot of the life course on the front end, including acquired disabilities, challenges to vision, challenges to hearing, are actually coming on a lot sooner because of the amount of time young people are spending on screens oh. as well as with earbuds in their ears. So 
devices which were you know really exclusively for the oldest old at one point those readers those those hearing aids all of a sudden younger people need them at a faster pace now so that's actually i think helped uh spur on the adoption and the cool factor of some of these too that's fascinating well i found your book to be really intriguing and i'm kind of interested in demographics and patterns and what society looks like um but you have a lot of what seems to me to be useful information here for anybody in business, anybody thinking about um, organizations. Who, who do you think uh, seems to be most interested in, in your book? Where, where does it seem to really be hitting home? So the, the, the two industries that I think are most attuned to demographic change right now, outside of the obvious, the long-term care industry, um, are healthcare broadly, health and well-being, um, but also uh, financial services, uh, retail banking, uh, insurance, and the like. Those companies seem to be more attuned to demographic change than virtually any other organization out there. We are launching uh, next month what we call Super Age Inclusive Design, which is a set of standards uh, and a certification program that will help individuals and organizations build better space. And we want companies that are in hospitality to sink their teeth into this because if they don't, um, and, and retail as well as others, including workplaces, if they don't do this, if they don't sink their teeth into this, if they don't consider design, inclusive design is central to the way they operate, they're leaving behind, you know, 20 to 25% of the population at least. And in a world where births are falling behind deaths, in a world where our society is getting older and older each day, in order for businesses to really reap the rewards of demographic change, they need to think more inclusively. They need to think broader than just the youth market or the retirees. They need to think about us as a market, and that's all of us together. Well, your book, The Super Age, gives us a lot to think about, Brad. I'm so um, thankful that you were here to join us today, and I wish you well with this book. I think it's a terrific tool for people who are trying to figure out how they're going to either manage their own life or manage the marketplace in the future. Well, thanks for having me today, Bev. Today, we've been talking with Bradley Sherman, a noted expert on demographic change. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today's tip is that work can feel more interesting if you recognize that you don't have to have just one career. You can have more than one job at a time, and you can keep learning and occasionally redesign your career. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and please come back soon. Music